Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. In this tense Jack London short story from the South Pacific, a group of men relaxing on the deck of a ship are told the story of a beautiful but deadly young woman who tries to lure a young islander boy to his death for her own thrill. And now, Under the Deck Awnings by Jack London. Can any man, a gentleman, I mean, call a woman a pig? The little man flung this challenge forth to the whole group, then leaned back in his deck chair, sipping lemonade with an air commingled of certitude and watchful belligerence. Nobody made answer. They were used to the little man and his sudden passions and high elevations. I repeat, it was in my presence that he said a certain lady, whom none of you knows, was a pig. He did not say swine. He grossly said that she was a pig. And I hold that no man who is a man could possibly make such a remark about any woman. Dr. Dawson puffed stolidly at his black pipe. Matthews, with knees hunched up and clasped, was absorbed in the flight of a goonie. Sweet, finishing his scotch and soda, was questing about with his eyes for a deck steward. I ask you, Mr. Trelawar, can any man call any woman a pig? Trelawar, who happened to be sitting next to him, was startled by the abruptness of the attack and wondered what grounds he had ever given the little man to believe that he could call a woman a pig. I should say, he began his hesitant answer, that it depends on the lady. The little man was aghast. You mean, he quavered, that I have seen female humans who were as bad as pigs and worse. There was a long, pained silence. The little man seemed withered by the coarse brutality of the reply. In his face was unutterable hurt and woe. You have told of a man who made a not-nice remark, and you have classified him, Trelawar said in cold, even tones. I shall now tell you about a woman, I beg your pardon, a lady, and when I have finished, I shall ask you to classify her. Miss Carruthers, I shall call her, principally for the reason that it is not her name. It was on a P&O boat, and it occurred rather more or less than several years ago. Miss Carruthers was charming. No, that's not the word. She was amazing. She was a young woman and a lady. Her father was a certain high official whose name, if I mentioned it, would be immediately recognized by all of you. She was with her mother and two maids at the time, going out to join the old gentleman wherever you like to wish in the East. She, and pardon me for repeating, was amazing. It is the one adequate word. Even the most minor adjectives applicable to her are bound to be sheer superlatives. There was nothing she could not do better than any woman and than most men. Sing, play, bah! As some rhetorician once said of old Knapp, competition fled from her. Swim! She could have made a fortune and a name as a public performer. She was one of those rare women who can strip off all the frills of dress and in simple swimming suit be more satisfying beautiful. Dress! She was an artist. But her swimming! Physically she was the perfect woman. You know what I mean. 
not in the gross, muscular way of acrobats, but in all the delicacy of line and fragility of frame and texture, and combined with this, strength. How she could do it was the marvel. You know the marvel of a woman's arm? The forearm, I mean. The sweet fading away from rounded biceps and hint of muscle, down through small elbow and firm, soft swell to the wrist. Small, unthinkable, small and round and strong. This was hers. And yet to see her swimming, the sharp, quick English overhand stroke, and getting somewhere with it, too, was, well, I understand anatomy and athletics and such things, and yet it was a mystery to me how she could do it. She could stay underwater for two minutes. I've timed her. No man on board, except Dennison, could capture as many coins as she with a single dive. On the forward main deck was a big canvas tank with six feet of seawater. We used to toss small coins into it. I've seen her dive from the bridge deck, no mean feat in itself, into that six feet of water and fetch up no less than 47 coins, scattered willy-nilly over the whole bottom of the tank. Dennison, a quiet young Englishman, never exceeded her in this, though he made it a point always to tie her score. She was a sea woman, true, but she was a land woman, a horse woman. She was... Ah, she was the universal woman. To see her, all softness of soft dress, surrounded by half a dozen eager men, languidly careless of all of them, or flashing brightness and wit on them, and at them, and through them. One would fancy she was good for nothing else in the world. At such moments I have compelled myself to remember her score of 47 coins from the bottom of the swimming tank. But that was she, the everlasting, Wonder of a woman who did all things well. She fascinated every betrousered human around her. She had me, and I don't mind confessing it. She bade me to heel along with the rest. Young puppies and old gray dogs who ought to have known better. Oh, they all came up and crawled around her skirts and whined and fawned when she whistled. They were all guilty, from young Ardmore a pink cherub of nineteen outward bound for some clerkship in the consular service, to old Captain Bentley, grizzled and sea-worn, and as emotional to look at as a Chinese joss. There was a nice middle-aged chap, Perkins, I believe, who forgot his wife was on board until Miss Carruthers sent him to the right about and back where he belonged. Men were wax in her hands. She melted them, or softly molded them, or incinerated them, as she pleased. There wasn't a steward even, grand and remote as she was, who, at her bidding, would have hesitated to souse the old man himself with a plate of soup. You have all seen such women, a sort of world's desire to all men. As a man-conqueror, she was supreme. She was a whiplash, a sting and a flame, an electric spark. Oh, believe me, at times there were flashes of will that scorched through her beauty and seduction and smote a victim into blank and shivering idiocy and fear. And don't fail to mark, in the light of what is to come, that she was a prideful woman, pride of race, pride of caste, pride of sex, pride of power. She had it all. A pride strange and willful and terrible. She ran the ship. She ran the voyage, she ran everything, and she ran Dennison. That he had outdistanced the pack, even the least wise of us admitted. 
that she liked him and that this feeling was growing, there was not a doubt. I am certain that she looked on him with kinder eyes that she had ever looked with on a man before. We still worshipped, and we were always hanging about waiting to be whistled up, though we knew that Dennison was laps and laps ahead of us. What might have happened, we shall never know, for we came to Colombo, and something else happened. You know the area of Colombo, and how the native boys dive for coins in the shark-infested bay. Of course, it is only among the ground sharks and fish sharks that they venture. It's almost uncanny the way they know sharks, and can sense the presence of a real killer, a tiger shark, for instance, or a bull shark straight up from Australian waters. Let such a shark appear, and long before the passengers can guess, every mother's son of them is out of the water in a wild scramble for safety. It was after Tiffin, and Miss Carruthers was holding her usual court under the deck awnings. Old Captain Bentley had just been whistled up, and had granted her what he never granted before, nor since, permission for the boys to come up on the promenade deck. You see, Miss Carruthers was a swimmer, and she was interested. She took up a collection of all our small change and herself tossed it overside, singly and in handfuls, arranging the terms of the contests, chiding amiss, giving extra rewards to clever wins, in short, managing the whole exhibition. She was especially keen on their jumping, you know, jumping feet first from a height. It is very difficult to hold the body perpendicularly while in the air. The center of gravity on the male body is high, and the tendency is to overtopple. But the little beggars employed a method which she declared was new to her, and which she desired to learn. Leaping from the davits of the boat deck above, they plunged downward, their faces and shoulders bowed forward, looking at the water. And only at the last moment did they abruptly straighten up and enter the water erect and true. It was a pretty sight. Their diving was not so good, though there was one of them who was excellent at it, as he was in all other stunts, for he made the proper swan dive and did it as beautifully as I've ever seen it. You know, head first into the water, from a great height. The problem is to enter the water at the perfect angle. Miss the angle, and it means at least a twisted back and injury for life. It's meant death for many a bungler. But this boy could do it. Seventy feet I know he cleared in one dive from the rigging. Clenched hands on chest, head thrown back, sailing more like a bird. Upward and out, and out and down. Body flat on the air so that if it struck the surface in that position, it would be split in half like a herring. But the moment before the water is reached, the head drops forward, the hands go out and lock the arms in an arch in advance of the head and his body curves gracefully downward and enters the water just right. This the boy did again and again, to the delight of all of us, but particularly of Miss Carruthers. He could not have been a moment over twelve or thirteen, yet he was by far the cleverest of the gang. He was the favorite of his crowd and its leader. Though there were a number older than he, they acknowledged his chieftaincy. He was a beautiful boy, a young little god in breathing bronze, eyes wide apart, intelligent and daring, a bubble, a moat, a beautiful flash and sparkle of life. You have seen wonderful, glorious creatures, animals, anything, a leopard, a horse, restless, eager, too much alive ever to be still, silken of muscle, 
each slightest movement a benediction of grace, every action wild, untrammeled, and overall spilling out that intense vitality, that sheen and luster of living light. The boy had it. Life poured out of him almost in an effulgence. His skin glowed with it. It burned in his eyes. I swear I could almost hear it crackle from him. Looking at him, it was as if a whiff of ozone came to one's nostrils. So fresh and young was he, so resplendent with health, so wildly wild. This was the boy, and it was he who gave the alarm in the midst of the sport. The boys made a dash of it for the gangway platform, and it was he who gave the alarm in the midst of the sport. The boys made a dash of it for the gangway platform, swimming the fastest strokes they knew, pell-mell, floundering and splashing, fright in their faces, clambering out with jumps and surges, any way to get out, leading one another a hand to safety, till all were strung along the gangway and peering down into the water. "'What is the matter?' asked Miss Carruthers. "'A shark, I fancy,' Captain Bentley answered. "'Lucky little beggars that he didn't get one of them.' "'Are they afraid of sharks?' she asked. "'Aren't you?' he asked back. She shuddered, looked overside at the water, and gave an expression. "'Not for the world would I venture where a shark might be,' she said, and shuddered again. "'They are horrible. Horrible!' The boys came up on the promenade deck, clustering close to the rail and worshipping Miss Carruthers, who had flung them such a wealth of backsheesh. The performance being over, Captain Bentley motioned to them to clear out. But she stopped him. "'One moment, please, Captain. I've always understood that the natives are not afraid of sharks.' She beckoned the boy of the swan dive nearer to her and signed to him to dive over again. He shook his head and, along with all his crew behind him, laughed as if it were a good joke. Shark, he volunteered, pointing to the water. No, no, she said. There's no shark. But he nodded his head positively, and the boys behind him nodded with equal positiveness. No, 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 she cried, and then to us, who will lend me a half-crown and a sovereign? Immediately the half-dozen of us were presenting her with crowns and sovereigns, and she accepted the two coins from young Ardmore. She held up the half-crown for the boys to see. But there was no eager rush to the rail preparatory to leaping. They stood there grinning sheepishly. She offered the coin to each one individually, and each, as his turn came, rubbed his foot against his calf, shook his head, and grinned. Then... She tossed the half-crown overboard. With wistful, regretful faces, they watched its silver flight through the air, but not one moved to follow it. "'Don't do it with the sovereign,' Dennison said to her in a low voice. She took no notice, but held up the gold coin before the eyes of the boy of the swan dive. "'Don't,' said Captain Bentley. "'I wouldn't throw a sick cat overside with a shark around.' But she laughed, bent on her purpose, and continued to dazzle the boy. Don't tempt him, Dennison urged. It's a fortune to him, and he might go over after it. Wouldn't you? She flared at him. If I threw it? This last more softly. Dennison shook his head. Your price is high, she said. For how many sovereigns would you go? There aren't enough coin to get me overside, was his answer.
She debated a moment, the boy forgotten in her tilt with Denison. For me? She said very softly. To save your life? Yes, but not otherwise. She turned back to the boy. Again she held the coin before his eyes, dazzling him with the vastness of its value. Then she made as if to toss it out, and involuntarily he made a half-movement toward the rail, but was checked by sharp cries of reproof from his companions. There was anger in their voices as well. "'I know it is only fooling,' Dennis had said. "'Carry it as far as you like, and for God's sake don't throw it.' Whether it was that strange willfulness of hers, or whether she doubted the boy could be persuaded, there is no telling. It was unexpected to all of us. Out from the shade of the awning, the coin flashed golden in the blaze of sunshine and fell forward to the sea in a glittering arch. Before a hand could stay him, the boy was over the rail and curving beautifully downward after the coin. Both were in the air at the same time. It was a pretty sight. The sovereign cut the water sharply, and at the very spot, almost at the same instant, with barely a splash, the boy entered. From the quicker-eyed black boys watching came an exclamation. We were all at the railing. Don't tell me it is necessary for a shark to turn on its back. That one did not. In the clear water, from the height we were above it, we saw everything. The shark was a big brute, and with one drive, he cut the boy squarely in half. There was a murmur or something from among us. Who made it, I don't remember. It might have been myself. And then there was silence. Miss Carruthers was the first to speak. Her face was deathly white. I, I never dreamed, she said, and left a short, hysterical laugh. All her pride was at work to give her control. She turned weakly toward Dennison, and then on from one to another of us. In her eyes was a terrible sickness, and her lips were trembling. We were brutes. Oh, I know it, now that I look back upon it. But we did nothing. Mr. Dennison, she said, Tom, won't you take me below? He never changed the direction of his gaze, which was the bleakest I've ever seen in a man's face, nor did he move an eyelid. He took a cigarette from his case and lighted it. Captain Bentley made a nasty sound in his throat and spat overboard. That was all. That and the silence. She turned away and started to walk firmly down the deck. Twenty feet away, she swayed and thrust a hand against the wall to save herself. And so she went on, supporting herself against the cabins and walking very slowly. Trelawar ceased his story. He turned his head and favored the little man with a look of cold inquiry. Well, he said finally, classifier. The little man gulped and swallowed. I have nothing to say, he said. I have nothing whatever to say. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. If you enjoy our show, let me know. Apple App users can write a review, or you can email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. We really enjoy reviews. Thank you. 
And please tell a friend, or better yet, take a minute to help them subscribe to us at Apple or at player.fm. That's always an easy one to remember, www.player.fm, and it's simple to use. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs> 